Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. It is earnings. We've got some more uh, bank earnings. We started last Friday kicking them off. Uh, we got some more big ones uh, this weekend. we got some of the regional banks as well. But, of course, you know, you've got uh, some big, big banks this week. So we want to get to the bottom of it. So we're going to roundtable this discussion uh, because we can do that at, uh, at Bloomberg. Because we have Bloomberg Intelligence, some of the smartest analysts on Wall Street. Allison Williams, she covers the big banks. Uh, and uh, Herman Chan covers the regional banks here in the United States. We've got them both uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, so, Allison, let's start with you. What was the key takeaway from Friday when we had, you know, some of the banks kick off uh, J.P. Morgan being the most notable? And then this week, you've got Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs. Kind of what are you starting to see? What do you expect to see uh, from these big banks? The, the key takeaway was more resilient net interest income versus expectations. So holding up a bit better. And I think we, we had signs of that. The first quarter was strong. Um, and it looked like the banks were being conservative with guidance, and so they upped that guidance. So we're going to see if the same holds true for Bank of America. Part of that is that uh, they're growing credit card loans, which are higher yielding. And if you look at loan growth, that's really been um, the strong point that benefits big banks like J.P. Morgan City. Um, Wells also growing that a little bit. Bank America, we'll, we'll see. But Bank America does have a little bit more exposure to the commercial and industrial right. side. Um, which is weighing a little bit on Herman's side of things. And I want to bring Herman into this conversation because we're going to have 17 regional banks reporting this week. It does include U.S. Bank Corp, also PNC, reporting their first earnings results after the collapse of, obviously, First Republic, and then SVB when they triggered those industry fears in the spring. What do you think we should be expecting from right. the regionals? So so the, the regionals are going to feel the aftershocks of, of the bank failures in March and April that really come in the form of deposit pricing as deposit pricing continues to increase. We expect the interest margins contract, uh, top line revenues to contract because of the higher funding costs. And contrasting to what's happening with Allison's banks, you're not seeing the loan growth uh, versus the bigger banks because there's less exposure to credit cards. There's more exposure to commercial real estate and, and tr traditional business lending that and those areas are slowing across the industry. So, Herman, on the commercial real estate side, how big of a problem is this going to be for the regional banks around the country over the next you know, quarters, but really a couple of years probably? Yeah, that's right. So I would highlight that the, the real main focus is office commercial real estate at this point. Other areas that were sort of in the, in the spotlight, like hotels and, and other areas like that, are, are performing pretty well at this point. Uh, but office commercial real estate is, is the big focus. The good thing is that exposures are pretty manageable. We're talking about, for the regionals that I cover, 2 to 3% of their entire loan portfolio is situated in office CRE. 
that's a fairly small portion. And we also point to the fact that underwriting is pretty conservative with loan to deposit ratios around loan to value ratios around 60%, which suggests pretty strong cushion for for uh, potential you know, losses down the road. And so you could see that uh, you could see losses come, but it'll be pretty manageable over the next several years. So, Allison, whenever we do hear from Goldman and Morgan Stanley, how exactly will this put the investment banking slowdown into more perspective from here? So, obviously, the business is more important for those two banks and some of these more diversified banks that we watch. Um, I keep in mind that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley had really strong fixed income trading last year, um, especially driven by the commodities front. So, when we see some of those declines come in, there might be some some negative headlines um but in general we do think that you know there there is some support for fixed income trading normalizing in a historically high level equity trading not so much that's more uh negative on the margin for for morgan stanley because they do um are are more skewed to the equity side of things but more importantly we'll be looking at fees you know goldman is far and away the m a revenue leader there's all different kinds of rankings and such um, but they do tend to earn um, you know multiples of the next competitor in terms of revenue just due to sort of leading positions on certain deals and that that's been a headwind it's going to be a headwind for the banks are they still expecting you know optimism for 2024 um, these green shoots that we saw on the equity side of things will that help in the quarter um, and then you know wealth and asset management benefiting there from some of the recent equity prices how is that translating for those businesses for the big banks hey herman i know when we were talking to you almost on a daily basis there uh, a few months ago when we were earlier in the thick of this regional bank um you know um kind of meltdown a little bit for a handful of names what you've just kind of highlighted to us we need to focus on earnings risk for these banks and right. that's where the pressure is going to come um is has the earnings risk been taken out of this group or do you think there's still more downward revisions where are we in that process there's going to be there continues to be some uncertainty in regards to earnings uh, really it's going to be focused on the deposit repricing i don't think a lot of the regions have a firm handle on how quickly and how fast and, and where that potential deposit repricing stops. Um, we're going to see a potentially another Fed rate hike that's a negative for deposit repricing. And look, uh, JP Morgan just said that deposit competition is rising. And if the biggest bank in the United States says deposit competition is rising, then you could expect pressure across the regionals because of that. And I wanted to follow up on that because mm -hmm. the Fed has pointed to tougher capital and liquidity rules, especially mm -hmm. for the mid-sized banks. What do you think is at stake there? Yeah, so there's going to be higher capital ratios. We expect also higher liquidity um, rules, tougher liquidity rules for the regional banks. All that will serve to reduce uh, profitability and ROEs, return on equities for, for the regionals that we're talking about, regionals with assets above $100 billion. So we're talking about a, a fairly small subgroup of regionals, but you're going to see you know, a, maybe 100, 200 basis points of return just you know, sliced off, off the, the profitability spectrum across these banks. And that that's going to be something that the, the industry is going to need to digest. You're going to see some cost cuts. You could potentially see M&A down the road to absorb some of these regulatory pressures and, and, and top line pressures. So those are the things we're expecting down the road. Allison, real quick, 30 seconds. Uh, Goldman Sachs this week, how much pressure 
is the CEO, Mr. Solomon, under at the moment? I mean, I think to the extent that things are related to the environment, it's the environment. So I think investors yep. will be watching, um, you know, how the market share is holding up and somehow how are these longer term initiatives have, holding, have been holding up. I mean, there's been a lot of focus over the last couple of years on the consumer effort and sort of the wind down of some of those initiatives. But I would keep in mind that those were in place when he took the helm. And so, um, you know, it, it's not it's not necessarily something he created. It's not a reason that investors ever own the stock, um, quite frankly. But things like the alternatives business, things like what's happening on the cost side, that is something investors are focusing on. Um, you know, they're going to be way out of bounds in terms of their cost versus their target because they have some one timers and some impairment. So it's going to be pretty yep. much of a mess when they report. But people are going to be looking for, like, what is that core cost trend rode in on the train today saw a buddy of mine who's an m a banker he works at an investment bank that focuses on regional banks his wife wants him to retire um, <laughs> and he says no because the next five years he thinks are going to be the most lucrative in his career he's about 60 years old he's going to be the most lucrative in terms of fees of his career over the next five years and he wants to be there so boom he thinks there's going to be a lot of m a in the space i said that's interesting uh, so anyway, Allison Williams, Herman Chen, they cover all the banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. We appreciate getting them in office. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Lots of earnings this week, including uh, Netflix. After the close uh, on Wednesday, stocks had a great run. It's Over 100% uh, yep. over the last 12 months. Yeah, it's just amazing. It's still down about 25% from its all-time high, but... It's hitting a 52-week high today, so uh, finding its footing again. Geetha Ranganathan joins us here via Zoom. She covers all things media uh, on a global scale for Bloomberg Intelligence. So let's just start there, Geetha. It's the one bright spot, I think, within the media landscape uh, that's actually doing well from a stock perspective. What do you expect to hear from our friends at Netflix? Yeah, so absolutely. Things are looking pretty bright for Netflix. I mean, with all of the attention now on streaming profitability, this is one streamer that has really got 
that portion of the equation right. So they've found, uh, you know, this kind of nice formula where they're balancing costs and profitability. And so we're going to obviously see them kind of uh, really post, I think, good operating income numbers, good margin numbers. But I think where a lot of the attention is going to come down is to see where their most recent initiatives, whether those are bearing fruit. And what we're talking about is an ad-based year, which was introduced late last year, uh, late last year, but more importantly, their recent password crackdown uh, initiative. And they've kind of implement, implemented this in the US across the world in over 100 markets. And you know, some recent data points seem to suggest that it's actually gone much better than expected. So we might expect them to see to post much better subscriber additions. Right now, consensus points for about just under 2 million new subscriber ads. Uh, but you know, a beat could definitely be expected. And when you see a stock like this up more than 100% over the past 12 months, and even just looking this year to Paul's point, over 50% year to date, how much does this raise the bar this earnings season when it has been on such a tear? It definitely does raise the bar. I mean, the whole uh, focus right now for all of the media landscape is really on profits. And this is one company that has got it right. Uh, I mean, for the longest period of time, they were criticized for, you know, huge amounts of cash burn. And then this year where, you know, they've guided to three and a half billion dollars in free cash flow. Um, and you can expect them to even surpass that number. We are thinking closer to four, four and a half billion dollars in free cash flow. And, and this is coming at a time when other companies are kind of really struggling to find their footing in terms of, you know, uh, getting to that profitability metric. We saw some pretty, uh, you know, dismal uh, kind of forecasts out from Bob Iger and Disney just in terms of, you know, the, the, the linear TV business and even streaming profitability. There's really no clear cut path as we have at Netflix. We, we just don't, we're not not seeing it uh, at any other company. So obviously economics in the space are very, very challenged right now, but Netflix definitely will set the bar higher, no doubt about it. All right, so that's about the extent of the good news in your space, Geetha, Netflix. Um, the rest of it's a kind of a little bit dire. Let's start with Paramount, Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise. 56 million bucks over the weekend. I think that was below consensus here. Kind of what's the takeaway? Is it just a you know title-specific issue, or is this maybe ring a little bit more broader as it relates to what people where people want to go in terms of theaters and things like that yeah it's been a little bit of a roller coaster paul uh, in terms of box office performance so i think in general the tone has been pretty positive for about you know just generally uh we've kind of seen that comeback uh in terms of box office attendance but some of the more uh you know recent titles they haven't necessarily performed as well as you know industry experts were hoping for whether it's you know the indiana jones movie whether it was elemental from disney and now more recently you know kind of this this mission impossible but i i, I think you know overall the tone still continues to be pretty positive. I mean, if we're comparing box office numbers to pre-pandemic, yes, we're still down about 20 to 25%. Uh, but I think, you know, things, you know, should generally pick up. Uh, that said, again, the question being, are we ever going to see it go back to pre-pandemic levels? Probably not. I mean, we have multiple things right now affecting the industry. Um, you know, we have a strike that's going on. We have all of these companies that are kind of paring down in terms of their content spending. Disney even came out and said that they're actually taking down their studio spending. So if you kind of put all of those together, that doesn't necessarily bode extremely well for, you know, the health of, of the box office. What about when it comes to this Barbie movie that's coming out <laughs> soon? Have to ask about that and your thoughts on it. I, it almost feels like it was already widely distributed because we've been talking about it for so many months. I mean, I'm super excited uh, for it. I'm going to go watch it. 
Uh, I know we have that whole, you know, Barbenheimer with, you know, the Oppenheimer yep. movie also coming out. So there's obviously a lot of buzz, um, you know, it, huge promotions at CinemaCon when I attended that earlier uh, in April. You know, we had all the A-listers kind of come out and promote the movie. So obviously a lot of buzz. Uh, and I think it should do really, really well for Warner. All right. So let's go to Bob Iger. He had a pretty uh, extensive interview last week where he broke a lot of new ground, I thought. Uh, the biggest headline was... There's really no sacred cows at ESPN here. I mean, he was talking about, you know, maybe doing something with the networks, including ESPN, maybe spinning them off, uh, you know, partnering up with a third party. Wow. What do you what do you think they want to do with their linear TV business, uh, including ESPN? Yeah, there's just too much focus, Paul, as you know, on on the linear TV business. And as and if you've looked at some of the more recent cord cutting data, it's it's really really dire. So you know, we used to have video subscriber declines hovering around in the four, five, six percent range. Those have doubled right now. So mm. we're we're seeing about twelve percent declines wow. in the in the video subscriber base. So obviously, it does not bode well at all for the linear networks, uh, the linear network business. And I think Bob Iger was exactly referring to that. Having said that, though, I think he's making a little bit of a differentiation between you know, the ESPN assets, which are still very, very valuable to Disney. So they're obviously trying to find some kind of future path with, you know, that that a big bigger foray into the direct-to-consumer portion of the, of, of the ESPN business. But they are also saying that, you know, all the rest of the uh, networks, so whether it's a free form, whether it's a Disney channel, whether it's an FX or a National Geographic, those are, or even the e, or even the a, ABC broadcast network, all of those are non-core assets and they're really looking to kind of offload those assets. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, obviously the writing is on the wall. Uh, these assets are in structural decline. The question is, yes, it's a good thing if D, if Disney can actually get rid of those and get some cash back into the business. Uh, the question is, who's really going to buy that? I mean, mm -hmm. is it going to be private equ equity? Is it going to be another media company? Just There's just no you know, healthy future outlook for those assets. So it, I think that is really the biggest question right now in investors' minds. And Disney also extended Bob Iger's contract by another two years to 2026. Shocking, <laughs> Shocking right, Paul? <laughs> I know how closely Paul watches uh, the stock Mickey Mouse, but what does it mean when it comes to giving a longtime executive like this more time to implement his turnaround plan and to ultimately find a successor? Yeah, I think you know that there's there there's the the positives and the negatives. The positive is obviously it's it 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 signals a lot of stability for the company, especially when we have such a turbulent uh, kind of a media ecosystem right now. So obviously Bob Iger knows what to do. He's not going to be shy about doing it. And remember, we already have uh, some kind of you know management upheaval with the departure of uh, the CFO Christine McCarthy. Yep. So kind of not having Bob Iger there would have led to kind of two executive searches at the same time, which would have been a little bit difficult, I think, for the company to maneuver. So I think this kind of makes sense. But again, it brings again to light the, the biggest issue for Disney, which has been the succession issue, and that just continues to be an issue. Um, so again, there's a little bit of good and bad, but I think as we kind of navigate this this very, very tumultuous time, it's good to have kind of a steady hand with Bob Iger. And I hear from a, a little birdie that Walt Disney Company is going to have an investor meeting, a good old-fashioned, bring everybody down to Disney World or Disneyland in October. Uh, and Geetha, I'm sure, will be there reporting <laughs> back to us. But that's where uh, I'm sure they'd like to make some big, big announcements. So be on the lookout for that. Geetha Ranganathan, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Geetha is our global head of all media uh, in uh, research, and we appreciate getting a few minutes of her time. Uh, but again, as, you know, as Geetha was just suggesting, it's a tough time to be an investor in the media space, not... 
There's it just is. so much uncertainty there. And looking at Disney's stock, ticker symbol DIS, it's flat for the year. You look over the past five years, down more than 20% yep. in that span. Yep, exactly. So, um, you know, the real, as these companies pivot from the traditional distribution of cable systems and satellite systems to this new thing called streaming, there's just a ton of uncertainty about how that will happen and the, the actual profitability of that business. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, you join us now from India, where you're meeting your counterparts. It's the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors meeting. And really, the cloud around this meeting is the fresh data we got out of China today. Beijing slowing momentum in their growth. City is talking about uh, the growth target being at risk. I'd like to start, Treasury Secretary, with the fact of whether you think this means there could be an increased chance of a U.S. recession. Well, uh, you're talking about the slow growth number from China. Is that right, Anne-Marie? Yes, correct. Uh, so I think China has seen slower growth uh, than they expected um, upon opening up from COVID. Uh, consumer spending has been relatively weak. Um, it looks like consumers are more focused on building back their savings buffers. And so growth has been slow. And as you know, youth unemployment um, is quite high there. So I think the Chinese are concerned about uh, sluggish growth in their economy. But what does this mean for U.S. growth and global growth overall? Is the soft landing in the United States still your base case scenario? Well, many countries do depend on uh, strong Chinese growth uh, to promote growth in their own economies, particularly countries in Asia. And um, slow growth in China can have some negative spillovers. Uh, for the United States, uh, growth is slowed, but our labor market continues to be quite strong. Um, I don't expect a recession. I, I think that we're on a good path to bringing inflation down. The most recent inflation data were quite encouraging uh, that we're making progress on getting inflation down. But um, as I'd hoped and expected, that would occur in the context of a strong labor market, and we continue to see that. Uh, the labor market's been, the fact the labor market's been so strong has uh, encouraged more prime age people to enter the labor force and to work. And that's helped take a bit of the heat out of the labor market. Um, the fact that growth overall has slowed after we enjoyed a rapid recovery, that's normal, but it's also led to some reduction in um, the uh, desire of firms to hire, still lots of job openings, but mm -hmm. uh, wage growth is moderating and inflation is uh, subsiding. So I think we're in a good path on the United States. 
Okay, so it sounds like soft landing is your base case, and you don't think we're going to see a recession. Yesterday, when you were speaking to reporters, you talked about this de-escalation with China, and you ruled out lifting tariffs as part of this de-escalation with Beijing. So what is on the table? So, um, you know, several years have gone by in which we've had um, COVID lockdowns, especially in China, and very limited contact between senior officials in the United States and China. And um, we now have a new economic team in China uh, that uh, we need to establish relationships with. Uh, we need to get our relationship back in a more stable place, put a floor under it, and try to promote better understanding between our countries. So. Uh, I recently made a trip, um, met with a number of senior uh, Chinese officials, including uh, the new economic team there. Uh, we had very candid discussions. Um, each side raised a series of concerns. Chinese uh, certainly mentioned their concern with the tariffs that we have in place. Um, but we had constructive conversations uh, deepened our understanding and um, of the economic situation and um, of our concerns, we're able to address them and agree that there are a broad range of global challenges, particularly debt and climate change that affect the entire global economy that we need to work on jointly. And um, I'm hopeful we'll able, be able to do that more successfully. On tariffs, um, you know, we put tariffs in place on China because we had um, underlying concerns about unfair uh, trade practices, particularly those affecting intellectual property and technology transfer. And those concerns really have not been addressed. Um, mm -hmm. We're undergoing a four-year required review of tariffs. And, of course, China also retaliated putting tariffs in place on us. Um, we have to see what comes out of the four-year review. But I would emphasize um, that really the underlying concerns we have have not yet been addressed, and we need to work on that going forward. But when you're looking at de-escalating, we're trying to figure out what will be left on the table. Because what it feels right now is the administration is actually just amping up when it comes to potential tit-for-tat with Beijing. There is the outbound executive order that potentially we could see as soon as the end of July or this summer. Could that be a place pulling a punch from the outbound executive order, may, maybe making that a little bit more toned down? Could that be a place you could de-escalate with Beijing? Well, first of all, I want to say that what we're doing is not tit for tat. What we're doing is um, putting in place controls that are designed to protect U.S. national security and in some cases to address uh, fundamental human rights abuses. And um, we do intend to protect our national security we have export controls that play an important role in accomplishing that. And what I try to explain to our Chinese um, counterparts 
is that our desire is to, to make these uh, U.S. policies clearly national security focused, uh, transparent, and narrow. Um, that we're not attempting to stifle economic progress in China, that we have and want to continue to have uh, deep economic ties. After all, this year our trade has reached almost $700 billion. Um, we right, feel but if that, the national security uh, we have concerns... a economic... Madam Secretary, if the national security concerns are so important, Jake Sullivan called for this outbound executive order two years ago. Why is it taking the administration so long? So we are looking carefully at outbound investment controls, and they would serve as a complement to the export controls that we have in place um, to make sure that we've covered all the channels by which technologies can be transferred to China that we think pose national security concerns. I explained to my Chinese counterparts that if we go forward with these, they would indeed be narrowly targeted. They would focus on a few sectors, in particular semiconductors, quantum computing, and artificial intelligence that they would contain a combination of notification requirements and in very narrowly scoped um, portions of these sectors, um, prohibitions. But these would not be broad controls that would affect U.S. investment broadly in China or, in my opinion, um, have a fundamental um, impact on affecting the, the investment climate for China. So these would it be national like, security focused. It sounds like it's already done. Is the administration have it finished and is just waiting for a good time to release it? We want to make sure if we do this that we get it right. And we've been working on the details. Um, if we do go ahead, um, and there is a good chance that we will, that we would put out, you know, along with the executive order, a notice of proposed rulemaking so that the public would have a chance to comment on these um, proposed controls and um, we would receive a wide range of public input before finalizing anything that we do. Madam Secretary, you obviously have a lot on your plate when it comes to re-engaging with China and your discussions there just off this trip from Beijing. I'm curious how difficult the dialogue is going to continue to be after the revelations about um, the Chinese hacking of your colleague, Secretary Gina Raimondo. So I do have concerns about um, hacking of U.S. government officials or uh, private individuals or companies, and I know the United States has expressed those concerns, but we intend to continue to deepen our discussions uh, with China uh, to increase our engagement. It, it's especially important to um, explain what our motivation uh, is 
to avoid misunderstandings that can lead to unnecessary and dangerous escalation. Uh, President Xi and President Biden agreed in Bali that um, senior, senior officials, including those in economics, um, should interact more regularly. And um, I think an outcome of my trip there was that we will have deeper ongoing engagement at all levels. When did you learn about the China email hacking? I'm curious if you had a chance to maybe bring this up on your trip to Beijing. Um, I believe I did not know about that um, in Beijing. I, it was, wasn't one of the things that we discussed. I also want to ask about what's happening on the ground, something that I know is very important to you, and this comes to debt relief of these developing countries. Um, there has been this push from the U.S. administration to use the Zambia principle for other countries like Ghana, but that's not getting the broad support it needs in India on the ground amongst other G20 uh, finance ministers. Is China the holdup here? Well, look, we, we designed, the G20 designed um, something called the Common Framework, which is a set of <clears throat> principles and processes to deal with unsustainable debt situations. And um, we would like to see countries that apply to use the Common Framework get rapid relief from their debt um, that they need in order to grow and be able to attract investment and undertake um, IMF programs that can help to stabilize their economies. And the few cases that have um, applied to use the common framework, including Zambia, have taken far too long. The process has been onerous and it's taken a very long time to get debt relief. We are pleased that China has become, China after all is a major creditor of these countries. Um, we have been anxious to see China move more quickly and take a more constructive um, attitude of participating in these debt relief talks. And um, getting agreement on Zambia was an important step. China has also um, been helpful in Ghana, the case of Ghana and uh, Sri Lanka. And I'm hopeful that we'll be able, going forward, to make more rapid progress. I, I should emphasize that the debt issue is one that concerns the entire G20. And we are united in wanting to see this framework work more effectively and uh, it is a priority for India as well. All right, that was Bloomberg's Washington correspondent, Anne-Marie Hordern, sitting down with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen for an exclusive interview from the G20 Summit uh, India, talking about all things uh, China and the global economy. We want to follow that up with a discussion with Enda Curran. He's a global economy reporter with Bloomberg News. So, Enda, you know, fascinating discussion we, uh, Anne-Marie Hordern, had this morning with Secretary Yellen here. I mean, the the messaging seems to be that the u.s government's trying to work with the chinese government but there is just a lot of challenges out there uh what did you take away from this discussion 
Uh, maybe some mixed messaging, I think, coming from the administration, because obviously we know there's been a very hawkish rhetoric. It's all about U.S. strategic rivalry with China. But we had this morning Missy Ellen making those making those comments in the interview that you just played, saying, for example, the U.S. will go ahead with those investment restrictions on China, but she doesn't really see it having an overall harmful effect. It's fairly targeted, precision kind of policy. And obviously that will stoke debate over, uh, you know, what exact... Uh, China strategy is the administration pursuing? Are they trying to get things on an even keel and and sort of reach for conciliation, or are they pushing ahead with sort of the hawkish side of things? So I think there's um, there's grounds for debate there around some of the signals coming from that. She also spoke though about um, the, what the Chinese economy is signaling for the rest of the global economy, and she made some remarks during the G20 about how. China's slowdown is definitely going to slow down trading partners in the Asia region, but probably won't be enough to spill over to the US and uh, drag the US economy into, into recession itself. So, um, as I say, um, covering a lot of ground, but maybe mixed signals from the Treasury Secretary on, on the China policy. Something that struck me in Paul was when Yellen was talking about youth unemployment being so high in China. Do you know exactly what drives that dynamic? Yeah, it's up over 20% now again. On paper, that's a record, but the data doesn't actually go back that far. It only goes back to 2018. Uh, there are a few different things that play in China. There's been a record amount of graduates coming on the market. I think it's 11 odd million this year. So they're obviously all going to be looking for work. There's a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, change in China's economy in recent years. That big regulatory crackdown on the tech sector, for example, took away some of the low hanging fruit when it comes to young graduates getting work. That's been cited as one factor. And of course, then you have this broader slowdown. This was meant to be the year of recovery in China's economy, post the COVID zero policy, uh, services and consumption were meant to drive this big uh, fizz in demand. Well, it looks like that's kind of petering out. It's, it's been a disappointing recovery. Lots of economists now downgrading their forecast for China's economy. Some people even warning that the uh, China's government will miss the growth target of around 5% this year. So you would have to say the pressure on youth employment is, is part of the mix of the broader economic slowdown there too. So, and uh, how broad and how deep do you think the economic slowdown is likely to be in China. I know it's tough to get reliable data, um, but and, and, and you know, but I, the concern is that could have an impact on the global economy. Yeah. So this was meant to be the year that China would spill over to the rest of the world, as we were just talking about. Chinese tourists would go everywhere and spend money, and Chinese students, and of course Chinese demand for imports from bulk commodities, and everything else. But it hasn't really played out like that. And to your point, then on the ground, all indications are the official data saying there has been. A material slowdown there. It's, it's disappointing to the, to the point now where economists are saying two things. China is at risk of deflation, certainly stark contrast to the US there, and also that they may miss the official growth target of around five odd percent. That was considered to be a conservative growth target when it was said that the government could pretty easily meet it, but now that's in danger. So, of course, it's difficult to tell what's going on in China. It's such a huge economy, and there are, there are questions around transparency of data, but consistently it's showing that the real estate sector is in the slump. The consumer rebound story isn't there. The industrial side of things is picking up a bit at the moment, but exports remain in the doldrums. So, by all accounts, China's economy is certainly slowing down, and it's a question of by how much. All right, Enda, thank you so much. We appreciate that, as always. Enda Kern, uh, he is just giving us kind of an overview of kind of what we're seeing here on the U.S. and China to try to reset some economic uh, discussions here between the two countries. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. 
It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jess Mitten, Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And for our next segment, we're going to talk about sort of scanning for stocks here with Julie Gorty, who's Senior Vice President for Sustainable Investing at Impacts Asset Management, joining us on Zoom to discuss how this record heat is affecting physical assets and which sectors and companies are most at risk. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Take a step back and tell us about Impacts and what you do. Sure. Impacts is an investor with about, we have about $50 billion in assets under management. We're based in London, but we have offices in North America and Asia. So we're a global investment firm. And what we invest in is the transition to a sustainable economy. So everything that we do is aimed at investing in the things that have the long-term value drivers of sustainability. So give us examples of kind of some of the areas that you're, that you've invested in. So we're investing in uh, the food and ag sector in things that are crops that will be more resilient to heat and to drought. In climate change, we invest in solutions that will mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions, obviously wind and solar, but also things like pumps, pipes, filtration, uh, much more efficient uh, heating, uh, air conditioning and space conditioning. Um, We invest in things that are water saving and that actually help to purify the water and things that avoid having to use, (laughs) things that allow you to use water in situ, right? If you have to pump your water 50 miles from a reservoir and then back to the wastewater treatment plant, well, water weighs about nine pounds a gallon and it takes a lot of energy to pump it. So anything you can do to to retreat your water and reuse it in situ is gonna save you both in terms of water and climate. So ideas like that, chemicals that are less polluting. In, Stuff re- like that. in relation to these physical assets, why is physical climate risk so important, in particular when you want to look at more industries in the stock market, too? Yeah. So when we think about climate risk in the past, we've tended to think about the big emitter, so energy stocks and utilities and things like that. But everybody is vulnerable to physical risk. You don't. You can be a non-emitter 
But if you're on a coastline that's vulnerable to a hurricane, you can still get affected by climate change. And increasingly, that's happened. We've seen disruptions in air travel. We've seen outdoor work become much more dangerous. There are people, there's a high rising mortality rate, and it absolutely affects productivity of both people and other organisms that have to work outside in high heat. You've seen vulnerability of whole economies, local economies, to things like hurricanes and you know, severe weather, coastal storms, sea level rise, all of that stuff can have a major economic impact. Right now it's having impacts that are running in the hundreds of billions of dollars of insured losses annually, and that's just the insured losses. So double that if you wanna, or you know, it could be even higher if we count uninsured losses, and that's going nowhere but up. As long as our emissions are rising, physical risk is rising. You that talk, can affect anybody. You talked Sorry. about energy. What other specific sectors, industry groups, do you think the stock market is most vulnerable to when you're talking about physical climate physical risk? risk? Okay, so agriculture, obviously anything in the food right. value chain. Um, there are also a lot of electric grids um, that are vulnerable. That's not energy production, but it's sort of getting the energy to households. We've seen rolling blackouts in California. You know, we saw the Texas grid freeze basically go out because of that. But, you know, we can, all, can also affect transportation. So we saw, you know, like if it gets hot enough, the uh, asphalt buckles and rails expand. So things like air travel get disrupted by the storms as well as just by what's happening on the asphalt in, in airports. So anyone who ships their goods, you know, could be vulnerable to disruptions in transportation. We were just having a call this morning with a really big semiconductor company that ships most of their stuff by air. So air disruptions can matter a great deal to the semiconductor supply chain. You want to know what that disruption looks like? Look at what happened during COVID. So, Julie, it just feels like, you know, climate change has become such a political issue here in the U.S. I don't know how it is around the world here, other parts of the world. Do you encounter that with your investing, with companies you look at, with your discussions of all the stakeholders out there? And, and if so, how, how do you deal with it? So the backlash um, in the U.S. primarily, I would say, is primarily political. When we talk to firms about it, when we talk to them about physical risks or transition risks, they get it. Mm -hmm. um, whatever the political discourse is, it doesn't affect the facts, really. It can affect policy. But the fact that physical risk is happening is going to happen whether people believe it or not. So they get it. When we talk to the firms in the S&P 500 about physical risk, the firms that had thought about it understood that it was the impacts could be severe, unexpected, making decisions in a crisis. Like if you have a hotel full of passengers stranded in the Bahamas by a hurricane, you have to do something to get them out if you're the hotel company. Because otherwise, they're never going to stay at one of your hotels again. So our discussions with companies are usually pretty productive. They understand the importance of climate risk. They understand the importance of doing something about it. And so do our shareholders. What do companies need to disclose when it comes to these key assets and where the value chain dependencies end up being located? What a good question. That's exactly what we ask them. So the first thing we need to know is investors, what we're pricing is where the puck is going, not where it is, right? So we need to know what assets are going to be vulnerable to physical risk. And since physical risk, how much physical risk you face and what type depends on where you are, the first thing we need to know is where are your assets? It's right? so a where are your manufacturing plants? Where are your big distribution centers? What ports do your 
primary shipping, does your primary shipping go through? Where are your key supply chain dependencies? So I'll just give you a quick example. Um, biggest semiconductor manufacturer in the world is TSMC. A couple of years ago, the drought in Taiwan was so severe that they almost had to close down their plant. It takes a lot of water to make semiconductors, very little of which ends up in the semiconductor, but it takes a lot to make one. The government was considering even seeding clouds to try to make it rain. Luckily, the drought ended first, but that could have been really a disaster for them. Um, so the first thing we need to know is where are you, you know, and where are the key nodes in your supply chain so that we can assess your vulnerability. We can run the climate models, and we do, um, but we need to know where the, what they're going to affect in terms of companies' assets and dependencies. The next thing we need to know is what you're doing about it. So do you recognize what these risks are? And if so, what measures have you taken to avoid being vulnerable during an event, a hurricane, a flood, a wildfire, a drought, an outage in the grid, something like that? Then if we have that kind of information, then we can you know, do our own magic and figure out what the, how to price that risk. But we don't even have physical location information right now. Mm. That's kind of where I wanted to go, Julie, and we got about 30 seconds left. Data. We're Bloomberg here. We're a data company. Is there adequate data for you to really do your job and assess the risk? No, I'm, we can get information on where the risks are, and we know some of the company locations, so we can do assessments. But in order to do a really good job, we'd need to have much better data on location and on companies' management of and recognition of physical risks and how they're adapted. Julie, thanks so much for joining us. Fascinating uh, discussion, a growing field, of course. Julie Gorte, uh, Senior Vice President for Sustainable Investing, Impacts Asset Management. Uh, kind of going to a risk here as part of the, I guess, the broader ESG it is. discussion, which again, as Julie was just mentioning, has become you know, highly politicized here in the US, much more so than in other parts of the world and making you know, folks that are focusing on that, their job a little bit more difficult. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, let's talk about the business of sports. And this is a good one. The Fenway Sports Group. Uh, you know them. They own the Boston Red Sox. Pittsburgh not, Penguins. Pittsburgh Penguins. And Liverpool Football Liverpool Club. Football Club, plus some other businesses. And I'm a Yankee fan, full disclosure, but <laughs> Yankee fans have a lot of respect for Boston. We know how good they are because we have to play them like 17 times every year. Let's talk about the business there. Julie Swinehart joins us. Uh, she's a CFO and and. Uh, EVP of Fenway Sports Groups joins us via Zoom. Um, Julie, thanks so much for joining us here. I want to talk to you about the real business of sports. And the part of it that I know well is the regional sports networks that support some of these regional sports like Major League Baseball, like NHL hockey. Uh, the regional sports network business is in a world of hurt. The biggest one uh, just filed for bankruptcy. Revenues are down dramatically because everybody's cutting the cord. How do you guys deal with it at the New England Sports Network? Uh, and how are you kind of dealing with those changes? Well, thanks for the question. First and foremost, thanks for having me today. It's uh, great to speak with both of you. Uh, regional sports networks are uh, in a time of change, I'd say for sure right now. Uh, New England Sports Network, um, you know, our ownership team supported them and, and uh, you know, really encouraged them to get ahead of, try to get ahead of what's happening as you described in the marketplace. So. We were, uh, I believe, the first 
to market with a direct-to-consumer product, which launched uh, just about 12 months ago. And so that's one way that Nesson is trying to stay ahead and uh, stay relevant and successful. And I think there's been a lot of um, early wins with, with DTC, a lot of learning as well, but um, more to come there. And I think that's one way that we can we can try to combat some of the headwinds out there that are that are just part of the landscape. So what does it take to fund a winning sports team? Where does the revenue come from? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know how nerdy you want me to get with uh, revenue <laughs> streams, but um, you know, coming in, and I, I've been here just about a year, uh, there's been a lot of learning, but a lot of aha moments for me. And there's more similarities across the different teams in terms of the revenue structure than I guess what I would have originally expected. But uh, there's the obvious you know, media revenue sources, there's sponsorship, partnership, advertising revenue, depending on which entity we're speaking about, and then also game day or match day um, sales. So fans coming uh, to the venues and and spending money on concessions and, and whatnot. So, but each of the teams have a little bit of a different makeup across the revenue. And really what keeps it all going is, as I think is probably pretty intuitive, is the excitement the, around winning. And we are here to win championships. And I think we've demonstrated um, you know, with John Henry and Tom Werner and Mike yep. Gordon and what they've built here, um, a really winning track record that allows us to do all those things. Talk to us about the Liverpool Football Club at the English Premier League. Uh, it's such a global business, a global brand, a global game. Um, talk to us about kind of your experience owning this. I think you guys have owned this club for almost a decade now. Yeah, a little over a decade. Um, and, you know, I think the investment over time, you know, we take, I should start with, we take a long view on all of our investments and uh, a very intentional approach in terms of trying to elevate and make make the teams more successful, make them better. Um, Liverpool does have a global reach and uh, they're one of our many important assets. Um, so it comes with just the right amount of support from from the FSG entity always listening to the supporters and the fans and trying to get input there from what they're looking for, uh, what's important to them. And as I'm learning, especially with that team, the fan base is really integral, um, like it is for all of our teams, but in a little bit of a different way over there. And we've demonstrated, again, a lot of success that, and we're always trying to think of ways to keep that going, uh, whether it be with with players or data or nutrition. Um, it's those micro advantages in sports in any of these sports teams that we own, um, that really can be what really makes the difference between a mediocre team and a championship team. Paul, I know with your experience as an analyst, you're really focused when it comes to those media contracts on yeah. when it comes to local and national, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the uh, one of the big issues, actually, one of the things that's interesting, Julie. I mean, I'm just looking at your the assets you guys do have here. Um, is there room for growth in other sports? Would you think about the NBA or maybe take a huge leap and think about the NFL? How do you, is there other sports that, that you guys are looking at? I think we're definitely in growth mode. Um, we did only recently, pretty recently acquire uh, the the majority of the Pittsburgh Penguins. So we're still, um, you know, on onboarding and, and bringing them into the family. Although it's been a, it's been a nice uh, transition, I think for everyone involved there. So, you know, our, I think, you know, our aspirations are limitless, um, whether it be a, a major league such as those that you described or something um, new and different like tomorrow golf league. We recently announced that we uh, are owners of the second team in that six, I think initially six team league. 
So we've got the Boston New England team um, in our in our FSG family as that league is getting started and building out, and that's a really exciting opportunity too. So they're not all going to be the, those large scale opportunities, but um, hopefully in time we'll continue to grow in in bigger ways as well. All right. So for all the Red Sox fans out there. Um, the Red Sox are tied, I believe, with the Yankees as of today for last place in the American League East. It is the most competitive division in all of Major League Baseball. Absolutely. What do you guys do here? It's mid-July. What do you guys do here as you come up to the trade deadline? How aggressive is the Red Sox going to be? Are they going to be buyers or sellers here? Ah, question of the morning. <laughs> uh, I, I can't share a whole lot there, but I will say there's a lot of excitement around how the team's been performing, especially as of late. And I think uh, the second half of the season – uh, time will tell, but I, I, I hold a lot of optimism for the Red Sox. All right, so Fenway, real quick, 30 seconds. I love Fenway. It's iconic. Everybody loves Fenway. Any changes coming to Fenway? There's always something going on, whether it be a new um, – I think we just we had pickleball here oh uh, recently. There's there's concerts coming up, some things like that are new. But also, uh, we recently received some key approvals for some real estate expansion around the park. So we're partnering with WS Development here in Boston to, in over time, add about two million square feet of mixed use uh, to really just continue to elevate Fenway Park, make it even more welcoming uh, to to more people, yep. and very. Uh, focus on pedestrians, and we're really excited that that project seems to be moving along. Great. Julie Swinehart, thanks so much for joining us. Julie Swinehart, CFO and Executive Vice President for the Fenway Sports Group's The Dreaded Red Sox. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.